Listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820 brings you Foundations in Faith. Join Monsignor Frank Lane as he offers insights into the readings heard at Mass. And now, Foundations in Faith with Monsignor Frank Lane. This is Father Frank Lane. We're continuing our program, Foundations in Faith. Today, we're going to look at the Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. It's a very familiar parable to us, but it's also a troubling parable because it doesn't strike our sense of justice and fairness, and uh, it brings us into kind of a perplexed relationship and understanding of how God functions and, and how he deals with us. You know, last week we looked at the gospel and we saw that much of it was about the proportionality of the relationship between God and ourselves and ourselves and others. Just the greatness, the magnificence of, of the majesty of God is so far beyond us that there is absolutely no capacity for reckoning of any kind and uh, of how somehow or other we have to be able to grasp how the Lord works, how the Lord functions. We have a tendency, and this has always been a tendency, to kind of impose our own rationality upon the divine being himself despite the fact that we are minusculely finite and he is infinitely transcendent. The chasm between our reason and the being of God is so vast that we really dare not try to impose it on him. We may use it to explore, but we may never use it to impose. And so basically, when we saw the idea of the unjust, of the unjust steward, when the Lord forgave him a debt of $3 billion, he refused to turn to his neighbor and refuse a debt of $5,800. And so we say, what a huge difference that is. We can't even comprehend. I don't know. We can't comprehend $3 billion. But we know that it's a vast amount. So we have this then, this relationship set up from the previous gospel, this relationship set up that in some way emphasizes the disproportionate relationship between ourselves and God versus the relationship between ourselves and each other, realizing that the other is so vast beyond us that we struggle to even grasp a glimpse of it. Well, we're going to get a deeper glimpse, and we're going to get a more precise glimpse of it in the parable that we have in today's gospel. And this is the one about the workers who go out in the field. And the gospel begins, Jesus said to his disciples, The kingdom of heaven is like a landowner going out at daybreak to hire workers for his vineyard. He made an agreement with the workers for one denarius a day and sent them to his vineyard. Going out at about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace and said to them, You go to my vineyard too, and I will give you a fair wage. So they went. At about the sixth hour, and again at about the ninth hour, he went out and did the same. Then at about the eleventh hour, he went out and found more men standing around. And he said to them, Why have you been standing here idle all day? And they say, Because no one has hired us. In the evening, the owner of the vineyard said to his bailiff, Call the workers and pay them their wages, starting with the last arrivals and ending with the first. And so we, we know where this is going, but let's look at what happened now in, here in the beginning. Jesus is not trying to paint any kind of a realistic picture here. While it is common, and still apparently common in the Middle East, 
in uh, in agricultural work for uh, men to stand around in the in the marketplace of the smaller towns and so forth and be hired for the day, their day laborers, that it would be very unusual for a person to go out four times a day and look for more people to go out. So he's he's not striving, he's not aiming towards towards some kind of a realistic scenario because he's he's moving now to a much much more important point. And the fact is, you know, when you tell a story and the story doesn't really correspond with reality, you might realize that you get more attention than if you just told it de facto, just straightforward the way it was, because people immediately began to engage their critical faculty. And in that, they began to engage in the story itself. And that's what Jesus is doing with this parable. He's getting their attention, in other words, so that they can focus and that they can see actually when he gets to the point that he's trying to make. So then we get to the point then where the day is over and he calls he calls the workers in and he tells his bailiff, you know, all right, now let's pay them. And then there's another unrealistic piece in the story. So he starts with the ones who were hired last at the 11th hour. And that would be unusual because usually you would start with the ones who you'd hired first. But he had agreed to hire them, the first ones, for one denarius. And, uh, and if he would have paid them the one denarius, they would have picked up their tools and they would have walked off and gone home. They would never have observed the rest of the story. So Jesus turns this around because he's trying to make this point. So he's, he's engaging the critical faculties of his hearers so that they are more deeply engaged in the narrative that he's inviting them into. And so each of those who were hired at the 11th hour came forward and received one denarius each. That's what he promised to the guys that he had hired in the very beginning. When the first came, they expected to get more, but they too received one denarius each. And they took it, but they grumbled at the landowner. The men who came last, they said, have done only one hour, and you have treated them the same as us, so we have done the heavy work all day in the heat. We understand that. It seems grossly unfair to us. If you go out into a hot field and you work all day long, you get the wage that you agreed upon. But then those who are only an hour out there in the cooler part of the evening, they get the same. And we say, what, where is the justice in that, my friends? I'm not being unjust to you. Did we not agree on one denarius? Take your earnings and go. I chose to pay the last comer as much as I pay you. Have I no right to do that? What I like with my, what is my own? Why be envious because I am generous? And thus the first will be last and the last will be first. So what has happened in all of this? What is this really all about? Is Jesus just trying to show us that God is not even-handed and is dealing with us? Is this just telling us that God can't do, you know? that God is whimsical, and, uh, you know, there's a great debate within Catholic theology, and uh, those who emphasize um, the will are kind of pejoratively oftentimes called voluntarists because they say, well, to emphasize the will of God um, over the intellect of God, over the reason of God, is to make God whimsical. Doesn't this sound whimsical to you? Doesn't this sound like, no, this is what I felt like doing, so this is what I'm going to do? 
and there's, there's no structure, there's no reality to it. Now, this gospel, therefore, because it moves in that direction in our mindsets, lies at the foundation of one of the great problems of Reformation theology, and that is saying that the, many of the Protestant exegetes in the earlier days would argue that this was a good example of predestination, that we have nothing to do with our salvation. It doesn't matter what we do. God gives us what he wants, and that's all that matters. And if he chooses to pay us the denarius, fine. And if he chooses not to, then that's fine too, because that's his prerogative, that's his will. Well, that's not what this gospel story says, however. You can see, if you look at it carefully, why you would come to that conclusion. And you would come to the conclusion that, therefore, we have nothing to do with our reward from God, with our justification, with our salvation, because he distributes it whimsically, exactly as he pleases, indifferent to our understanding of justice or righteousness or equality or any of those kinds of things. The Catholic position moves, therefore, subtly and carefully in between. It picks up on the last thing that we talked about, the tremendous disproportion between our relationship with God and our relationship with one another, that the vastness of the expanse is so great that we are not in control of it. That much the church says. The church also says that the generosity of God is his prerogative that we cannot impose our sense of justice on him, for he has a deeper sense of justice. He has a greater sense of justice. Maybe the ones who worked in the field all day, perhaps that's what they had to do to truly appreciate the pay that they received. Whereas maybe the ones who only worked an hour were more deeply appreciative of the generosity of the master, of the one who had hired them. What we see in this then, in the Catholic sense, is that the tremendous initiative of God. And yet there's something else that we do have to see. And that other thing is, is everybody did something. Some for the whole day long in the heat, some for an hour in the cool of the evening, but everybody did something. And this, I think, goes back to one of the very subtle points of Catholic theology and something that we have to come to terms with because we're not comfortable with it. It's something that was defined at the Second Council of Orange in the year 529. It was the discussion of how does faith come because we are saved by our interactivity with God's gift of faith to us. He saves us through faith. In that sense, of course, Luther was correct. We are saved by faith. The thing is that Luther added to the scripture was faith alone. Not so. We are saved by faith, but we must respond to that gift of faith. Or it will not grow and will not become a saving presence within us. Because despite the disproportionate nature of the relationship between God and humanity, nevertheless, grace itself, which comes from the word charis, which comes from the word charity, which means love, grace itself is a relational connection between ourselves and the divine. 
We are not totally ever completely passive. We are not simply the recipients of his whimsical will. We are, in fact, the recipients of his love. And while we cannot say, well, I am going to define what it means that God loves me. No, you're not going to define what it means, that, what, how God loves me. You're going to simply receive the, the love of God. And then, as a human being, you're going to respond to that love. Because that's how we're put together. Because that's how we function. Or, we're going to reject that love and say, I'm not interested in a relationship with you. I'm not interested in receiving your love. I want nothing to do with you. People do that. Oftentimes, they do so innocently. And by that, I mean because they have no idea who God is. And so they see God simply as some kind of a, a cultural icon of an ancient civilization, which is of no relevance to the contemporary world. That's not who he is, because that's not who being reveals himself to be. And even those who are intellectually locked deeply into the mystery and the meaning of human nature, few of them would totally dismiss the idea of being itself. Few of them would. They might say it's outside the realm of human comprehension. They might say it has nothing to do with our daily lives. But most of them would agree with the fact that there is, in some way, shape, or form, something more vast than ourselves. We might call it different things. We might call it the cosmos. We might call it life. We might call it experience. But it's, it's, a, it's a subtle belief in something greater than ourselves. Certainly this is kidnapped or captured in the... Uh, you know, the 12-step programs and so forth, the higher power business. In order for a person to find real stability within the world and within their life, they almost kind of have to acknowledge something greater than themselves exists. If they really only believe that they themselves are the greatest thing that exists, there's little hope for them ever to get their life together. So basically then what we're doing here, what we're looking at here, is Jesus is saying you have no right to judge my justice. You have no right to judge what I offer to each living human being according to what I know and you don't know are their basic, fundamental, and real needs in order for them to be saved. I will give to them through my wisdom and I will not submit myself to your understandings of reason and justice and so forth. I am just and I am reasonable, but my reason is so far beyond your reason that it is impossible for you to grapple with it, to comprehend it. You know, even in some modern science, we find that we find this being, and I know um, someone got very upset with me one time because they said, well, you know, I'm sick and tired of uh, saying, well, there's this and this and this and the cosmos, and, but that's what we call God. Well, I never said that. Aristotle says that, actually, or Thomas says that about Aristotle's unmoved mover. But that isn't what I said. I said that people have ways of trying to express this inner reality that is unformed by revelation and unformed by truth. But it's very interesting that when they pursue something radically, they oftentimes approach revelation. They oftentimes get near to what 
the Lord has told us about himself, to what being has taught, has taught us about himself. Because we are from the very created order participant, at least in the activity of the divinity, if not in the divinity, but in the activity of the divinity. That's who we are as human beings. And so human beings are going to find in that inner deep relationship a capacity to respond to something that is beyond themselves. Now, whether they create that something for themselves or whether they surrender to that which that something tells us about himself, which is in the word, that's up to the individual. That's part of the freedom of our will. But God himself is the initiator. God himself is the initiator. We are the cooperators. We can cooperate consciously and sometimes unconsciously but we are the cooperators. We never dare judge the living God. We never can say, well, judge, God judged unjustly in this particular case. This was an unjust act that he performed. This was an unjust, well, that's silly. It's unjust by human standards, but we don't understand the justice of God because we don't have his knowledge and we don't have his insight and we don't have his understanding. We can't just fall back in this kind of mindless posture of predestination and say, well, here it just shows, no matter, it doesn't matter what you do, if God wants to save you, he'll save you anyway. The good, you know, those who we judge good and bad and so on and so forth. No, that's not what it says at all. It says that in this relationship, it's the same kind of disproportionate grasping of relationship in this gospel that we had in the one with the unjust steward where there was the radical difference between $3 billion and $5,800. It's reminding us that we are not the judges of the Lord and that the Lord has a sense of justice and a sense of righteousness that is so far beyond our capacity to grasp that our role, honestly, is simply to respond to it in care and love when it comes to us in love, which we call grace. And so we, therefore, have to find a certain lack of judgmental. See, we, we hear a lot of times people say, well, you know, well, I was judgmental. Well, you know, sometimes you have to be judgmental. I mean, uh, I think I said this before. If you were a parent with a child and down the street you know that the family was all, there was a family all into drugs and your kid wanted to go down there and play, you'd say, no, you've made a judgment. Is that evil? Is that wrong? Of course not. That is good judgment, that's prudent judgment, that's being a good parent. We can judge acts, we cannot judge souls. And I think that that makes a huge difference. You can say, as far as I can see, this person is a very bad person. And you're judging on that person's acts. But if you say this person is permanently alienated from God and cannot be saved, you're wrong, you can't say that. That's a judgment that's none of your business. That's the judgment of God and God alone. And I think this idea, this has always been part of the problem with forms of, of Christianity. Always the claim, always the idea that somehow or other we can know more than we actually can know. This was one of the great crises of, uh, of philosophy and rationalism in the 19th century. Somehow or other, in uh, neo-scholasticism, 
we arrived at the point where we thought, you know, that we were claiming to know more than it was possible for us to know. We stand facing the mysterious vastness of everything. We stand there as finite creatures, minuscule creatures in a vast universe. How dare we say we're in charge? We're in charge of the information, we're in charge of everything, unless God affirms that for us. And that's exactly what Jesus does with the Apostolic College in the New Testament. He says to Peter, when Peter acknowledges him as the Messiah, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father in heaven. In other words, you just haven't figured this out for yourself. You were told this through revelation by my Father. And so that's why their false, the very false division between faith and reason. Reason only has trouble with faith when reason doesn't understand its limitations. I think in paragraph two of Ratio et Fides, um, I think John Paul mentions that by saying we have to remember that reason is damaged, or reason has been damaged by our own sinfulness, that somehow or other it is not, you know, the master of the universe. We ourselves have the obligation to live reasonable lives, and we have the obligation to use reason in our daily lives and not to act, you know, simply like irrational beings. But we dare never to impose those limitations of our reason on the divine being himself and therefore say he must behave in this way. In that sense, there is a harmony between the various strains of medieval philosophy. Those that went from pure determinism, you know, God, because God's a reasonable being, he must, he must reward good and, and punish evil. Well, we don't know that. We know that we must reward, re reward good and punish evil. That doesn't mean God doesn't have the right to do something else. But it doesn't mean that God is irrational. And it doesn't mean that we are irrational if we say that because there is a realm of reason in which humanity is given the gift that they must function within that realm. But they must always stand in awe and deference to the will of God and to the wisdom of God and to the justice of God, which are attributes of the divine that, like the divine, are so far beyond us that we can catch only a glimpse of what they might really look like. We may never absolutize our definitions of the divine unless the divine tells those things to us about itself through the word, through Jesus Christ, which he implants in the apostolic community and becomes the foundation of the magisterial church. We're not independent agents. We are those who, using the human gifts we have received, live our life as best we can. But the dominant connection to the divine is our relationship with him, not our sharing of his attributes. We participate in his attributes, certainly we do. We participate in his reason, we participate in his justice, we participate in his judgments, we participate in his love. We do that, but we don't grasp the vastness of what that means. We only can understand it in the limited persons that we are, the limited human beings that we are.
So this gospel and the gospel that we did the week before, the one about the unjust steward, are telling us very similar stories. They're saying that the justice of God is vast, enormous, and incomprehensible to us. And we're reminded that we dare not, therefore, take those categories and make them absolute in a finite world, a finite condition of our own behavior. We know also that our response to God is not to figure him out. Our response to God is to love him because he has loved us first. And so the kindness that wells up inside of ourselves in response to God's love for us, which we share with others, is the essence of the Christian life. Not that I know everything and you don't. It is contained in reason and knowledge and judgment and truth and goodness and beauty. But those are transcendentals which transcend us. We participate, but we do not possess. In our own lives, then, let us implore the Lord to help us always to have this realistic sense, which we call humility, of who we are in relationship with the divine, appreciative of the attributes of his that he allows us to share in, and in awe of the vastness of those attributes in the heart and in the person of the divine being himself. Foundations in Faith is a production of listener-supported St. Gabriel Catholic Radio AM820. Archives of Foundations in Faith are available at stgabrielradio.com. Then